Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. I'm a medical student at the Yale School of Medicine. My guest today is Dr. Marco Ramos. He's a resident physician at Yale Haven Hospital and a historian of science of medicine. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. I'm Marco Ramos. I'm a psychiatry resident at Yale, and I also have a PhD in the history of medicine. I did my dissertation on the history of protest and health activism in Latin America, and I'm hoping to turn that dissertation into a book soon. What sort of motivated your interest in psychiatry and history of medicine? Um, so psychiatry first, I guess, uh, it was actually, when I came into um, medical school, I wasn't initially interested in psychiatry specifically. I was more interested in um, particular vulnerable populations and just kind of medicine generally. And I thought I was going to go into primary care. And I started working at one of the free clinics in the area, in the community of Fairhaven. Um, it's called the Haven Free Clinic. And it's essentially a clinic that's devoted to treating um, Latino immigrants, most of whom are undocumented and Spanish-speaking. And so I was interested in this population. I started volunteering there, um, really thinking, like, this is going to be the kind of thing I'm going to do in my career, where I'm a sort of primary care physician, working with this sort of community. Um, but quickly in the visits, I just found over and over again that there, the patients were suffering all sorts of, like, um, psychological and emotional distress. And so I partnered with a psychiatry resident here at Yale, and we did a depression screening, and the rates of depression were like 35 and 40 percent. And that's really what, um, and then from there we started to, what, really from there I was like, oh, like, let's just connect these patients with like mental health resources in Fairhaven. Like, this is going to be really simple. Now we know they're depressed. Let's just like get them the help they need. And we looked around in Fairhaven and there are just no mental health resources for depression for this population um, for a whole host of reasons. Largely, though, the most basic being they don't have insurance. Um, and so we started a mental health program for depression at the clinic um, that's still running today that uses um, a global mental health model for treating this population. And initially, so that's kind of how I got interested in psychiatry. Mm -hmm. History of medicine for me was the next step. Um, I was initially really satisfied with this program and really excited about it and being like, we're helping this community. But as I started actually speaking with individual patients, it was clear that their psychological distress was coming from factors um, that were outside of my control. Things like poverty, things like being targeted um, by police in the area, things like everyday sorts of racism for not being able to speak English, social, social isolation because they were separated from their families. And I realized, the more I thought about it, it was like this program's um, great in all sorts of ways and satisfying for me as an um, emerging clinician, but it's kind of putting a Band-Aid on these larger issues, these larger social structural issues. Mm -hmm. And I was like, is that really what I'm gonna do as a physician? Is that, I'm gonna be interested in these vulnerable populations, right, that are suffering for, from all these sorts of things like poverty, racism, et cetera. And then I'm just gonna kind of put a Band-Aid on that as opposed to treating those larger structural issues. So what did you then study in history of medicine? So what I studied in history of, of medicine as a result of that, I was interested in in, in the sort of basic question, do we have examples from the past where you had physicians who weren't just putting a Band-Aid on structural violence, right? Mm -hmm. By structural violence, I essentially mean 
um, the violence that is done to people for these larger issues that I've been speaking about, like poverty and racism. So are there physicians in the past who instead of just saying, okay, you're a depressed person, here's some medication, or, or here's some psychotherapy, are like, oh, why are you depressed? It's poverty. Then we should actually address that poverty to begin with, not just your kind of depression that's manifesting. Are there examples of that from the past? And, that led, and, and this essentially is a more politicized form of psychiatry, right? Something that takes as its um, mandate not only to stabilize patients and make them healthier from an emotional perspective, but also to address larger political and social structures. And so to study that, um, I found a group of physicians in Argentina, they were psychiatrists, mm -hmm. who during the 1970s used um, the psychiatric profession as a platform for resisting a very violent military dictatorship in the 1970s. And that's kind of what was the um, focus of my dissertation research. So what kind of methods did they use to address the sort of uh, political repression going on in Argentina with their patients? So one thing that I found that was fascinating and, and something I've taken with me as someone who's training to be um, a future practitioner is they didn't really see a divide between their clinical work as physicians and their political work as citizens in the world. And an example of this um, was their work with um, victims of torture and their families. Mm -hmm. um, and so during the 1970s in Argentina, this was the last dictatorship. Essentially what the government um, would do is identify people who they thought were quote-unquote politically subversive, and they would subject them to torture, they would often murder and kill them, and they would use a whole host of strategies to um, target this population. What these um, psychiatrists would do were, were to take the victims of torture if they survived, as well as their families, and they would do something that you would do today as well. They would do like group therapy sessions where they would kind of work together through the trauma of having gone through this political repression. But then the next step they, they would take is after you know several months of group therapy sessions, they would say, okay, let's like move as a group patients and physicians together from the space of um, this like group therapy clinical encounter into the streets mm -hmm. and let's use this as a form of political protest, right? Let's turn these like therapeutic experiences in the clinic into political protest in the street. And they had this concept that they called therapeutic protest because their idea was not just that the protest could eventually topple the military regime by drawing, like for example, the attention of international human rights organizations to the abuses that were happening, and that happened. But they also theorized that the actual, actually going through the process of protest, right, was therapeutic for these patients. Like actually addressing the source of their emotional and psychological um, suffering through protest was something that could cure or maybe not cure, but at least help them work through their trauma and mental anguish. Wow, protest psychiatry. Yeah, it's yeah, protest psychiatry, exactly. So how did things turn out for those psychiatrists? What happened to them? Did the government sort of like attack them afterwards or? Yeah, um, so the government um, targeted a lot of these psychiatrists and they ended up becoming kind of victims of the torture that they were protesting, unfortunately. For, us, for others, um, they were forced into exile. Um, many, um, for example, fled from Argentina to Mexico, Mexico Cuba, Venezuela. Um, others remained in the country. And um, a group, for example, 
um, that was associated with an organization called the Madres de Plaza de Mayo, or the Mothers of the um, Plaza de Mayo, which was an activist organization. Mm-hmm. They teamed up actually with a group of psychiatrists, and it was kind of a union between psychiatrists and this human rights activist organization, mm-hmm. and they actually were able to survive many of them throughout the dictatorship and vocally protest the dictatorship. That's really cool. So when you were in Argentina doing your field work, how did you find, you know, archives or sort of documents that helped you um, sort of trace the history of protest psychiatry in the country? I'm gl- really glad you asked that question, um, because one thing that they teach you in grad school and sort of um, as you're training to be a historian, you're, you're taught to think about archives as these big sort of um, well-funded institutional buildings that have air conditioning. Right, like in D.C. <laughs> like in D.C. And like here, too. There are like beautiful archives here where you, you know, submit a form online and then you get to meet with an archivist and then they kind of bring you boxes and everything's well-organized. And so when I, when I, um, when I started uh, doing this project in Argentina... Initially, I came with the assumption that that's what it was going to be like, Mm -hmm. but I realized that those archives didn't exist largely because um, the state repressed any evidence of what it was doing during this period, Mm. right? And so there weren't these big institutional buildings that had evidence of what was happening during this period. There have been some archives that have emerged since, more in Guatemala and places like that, but generally it doesn't exist. And so what I found actually is that the archives... Um, that I was looking at weren't in these big institutional buildings. They were actually in people's homes. They were actually in the homes of activists. Many activists from this period actually kept and collected documents of what they were doing during this period in basements in their homes and hid these documents from the military regime. And so I would often be interviewing um, an activist about their experiences in the 1970s. And after a set of maybe four or five interviews, um, one activist, for example, asked me, said, I have the entire archive of the largest psychiatric organization, which was actually openly Marxist um, during the 1970s. Would you like to take a look? And I was like, yes, I would like to take a look. Right. Obviously, <laughs> obviously, I would like to take a look. Um, but what was interesting, it was a very different process. He didn't want me to have access to these documents until we had had enough conversations and enough trust build up that he felt like I was going to use those documents responsibly. And it was a very different sort of archival digging up and archival process than you find, I think, in many of the archives that you see in the United States or Europe. Right. You talk about digging up where they're like where they're like just like in the shelves in their basement. Where where were the documents when you yeah. saw them? Yeah, I'm glad you um, noticed that metaphor I was using digging up because in some ways it is a metaphor. Um, for example, you know, like this guy had just leather duffel bags that were in his basement that he kind of brought out and told me stories about how he had kind of hidden these documents under his bed during the dictatorship. Because if military officials found these documents in their house, mm-hmm. you would then be, um, you know, uh, um, kidnapped, kidnapped, tortured, killed, and so they really had to be hidden. For that reason, some people didn't just um, hide documents under their bed. Some people actually buried um, books and documents like these in their backyards. Um, and burial is interesting, um, I think, because um, it's not the same as burning a book, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you were really worried the military was going to find evidence that you were quote-unquote subversive and torture you, Mm -hmm. the easiest thing would just be to burn it. But for a lot of these activists, these books 
and materials meant so much that rather than burning them, they buried them in your, their backyard with the idea that it's someday they might be able to unearth them. Mm-hmm. There was actually a recent photographic installation about five years ago where um, a f- photographer, Marcelo Brodsky, partnered with an activist, Valdez. Um, her first name was Nelida. And they partnered together, um, and she remembered that she had buried all these books in her backyard. And so her sons actually dug up the books, and then Brodsky um, photographed, photographed them and created this sort of beautiful installation. But they, they, they used that as an opportunity to reflect on what ideas did the military regime repressed during this period and what does it mean to dig up those ideas today Mm -hmm. and that for me has been a really powerful metaphor because I've thought about this sort of I've been talking about this kind of politicized form of psychiatry that emerged during that time and that actually became a target of military terror and state violence and kind of has disappeared I believe right I've read your some of your work right and you talk about the 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 psychiatrists that were disappeared or sort of like kidnapped or taken taken away by yeah. the uh, by the government right and so you have you have these psychiatrists as i've been talking about who became targets of political repression and were physically disappeared but what's interesting and what i think that photographic installation points to is that it's not just like physical bodies and people that were disappeared mm-hmm. it's also certain ideas there's a certain notion of a politicized form of medicine or psychiatry that emerged in the 1970s, not just in Argentina, but also with the health activism of the Black Panthers, with right. people like Fanon in Algeria. There was this very politicized notion of what it means to be a physician in the 1970s that disappeared. And for a lot of, and then, and then now, I, in some ways, and we can talk about this some, I think is reemerging today. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the last like 20 or 30 years, this, this sort of um, politicized form of, health, of um, health practice kind of disappeared. And for a long time, I was like, why did it disappear? Where did it go? And I think the simple reason is, at least in the case of Argentina, and I think more broadly, um, is just because the state, for all sorts of reasons, targeted it and repressed it. Right. Mm-hmm. That's what you you had in the case of Argentina, where you literally had people say, you're a political psychiatrist who's trying to topple our military regime. We're going to kill you. Right. But the same thing happened in the United States during the same time where you had physicians partnering with the Black Panthers and the state coming against the Black Panthers, saying you're a violent organization that's. Um, going to topple our government. Right. Fred Hampton. Exactly. Exactly. And so you have these cases where the state essentially disappeared this, this more politicized form of psychiatry. And I think the reason I'm so interested in this history is I want my work to kind of dig up or recover this more political vision of psychiatry, not just as a sort of academic exercise, but to ask, you know, the two of us even as who are becoming physicians right now, like mm-hmm. if we dig this up and study this, what can it tell us about how we can be politically engaged physicians today? Right. And, and I think that's a really interesting... Um, sort of matter, right? Especially in this moment in the political climate here in the United States. And so there's a question as to whether physicians should wear their white coats to these rallies and like support the causes such as Black Lives Matter. But like there's never been a question as to whether physicians should like have a rally for like supporting the Affordable Care Act. And so I'm wondering, right, like so we have these physicians that obviously support healthcare coverage, but also are sort of more reticent to support you know, broader forms of social activism. And I'm wondering what you think um, both physicians and medical student activists 
can learn from previous movements um, of physician activism, such as the proto-psychiatry movement in Argentina? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think, I think that part of the problem with that question is the way that it's framed often, right? Where you think that your sort of clinical work, what you do in the hospital, what you learn in medical school is completely distinct from politics, mm-hmm. right? So, so you can, there's, a, there's a sort of belief that you can put aside your politics and just be a sort of objective, pure clinician, right? But for most of the vulnerable populations out there in the United States right now, they don't have that privilege. For example, for in Fairhaven right now, Latino undocumented immigrants are being targeted by ICE mm-hmm. directly because of policies enacted by our current president and the current political climate in which we're engaged in, right? Mm-hmm. And because they're being targeted by ICE, then they're presenting to clinics depressed and stressed and anxious, and then they're getting antidepressants, right? But they're not going to get that thing that they need, which is a policy that doesn't discriminate against them and isn't targeting them systematically in their communities, right? And so for our patients, there's no separation between politics and the I mean, even for some of us in medical school, right, you have, there are some universities like uh, Loyola uh, Medical School where they're the first school to accept uh, medical students who had a DACA status. So Thank you. Yeah. even within the field of medicine, right. many of us, you know, are from groups that are that have been historically or that are presently marginalized. And so, you know, when some of us sign up to like defend the Black Lives Matter cause or like defend DACA, it's not a matter of like a professional oath, but it's like this is a question of life or death for right. If not for ourselves, for our loved ones, yes. you know, like for people who look like us, and I think part of the part of the reason behind the uh, um, the pushback that we're getting in medicine, it's not a lot of people in medicine come from those backgrounds. Right. Um, yeah. No, I think th- I think that's huge as well, but and, and I think that's a really good point you bring up because it, this is the case for our patients, but it's also an important question for who gets to become a physician Mm -hmm. and how that's changed over time in our country. There have been groups, as you've been saying, people of color as well as women, as well as people, um, you know, um, gay men and women as well, people who have had... um, um, identified along all sorts of lines that have been systematically excluded from the profession of medicine. And... That then the question of like separating politics from what it means to be a physician is something that a white man can afford to do, but it's not something that a black woman can afford to do because the very question of what it means and who gets to be a physician has always been wrapped up in politics, right? Mm-hmm. And it's only for people in positions of privilege like white men where you've been able to kind of set aside or act like there's this sort of boundary between the sort of clinical regime and the political regime. But the reason, the role I think history can play here is that there's, again, this sort of like imagination that the clinic and politics have always been separated, right? Like that's some sort of like natural division that has always existed. And when you say, you know, in the 1970s, this is not how people saw things, right? right? And the reason that we see this separation today is because state repression disappeared this more politicized form of health practice, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's our vision of what it means to have an objective clinical science today depended on this state violence against practitioners who were brave enough to step up and say, there isn't a division between politics and health. 
interesting, but it's amazing to me when you see, when especially physicians who work with vulnerable populations and health disparities, it's amazing to me that you're willing to become a part of a movement like protect our patients and say, oh, you know, the Affordable Care Act needs to, um, you, you know, is really important for access to care in our country for all these vulnerable populations. But then there's clearly all these other policies, right? Like I was just mentioning, like targeting undocumented immigrants in communities like this that are affecting our patients' emotional um, well-being. Ma- well-being, as well as their physical health, right? And just everyday racism, for example, has been shown to have all sorts of traumatic consequences. Um, right. There's been recent research that it has come out by um, a group of psychologists at UConn um, studying the relationship between PTSD and racism. There's been a number of studies. There's been one really interesting study that has looked at um, transgender communities, and they've actually compared... Um, transgender um, uh, patients who have undergone a sort of specific trauma, for example, like sexual abuse or uh, rape or something like that, Mm -hmm. versus transgender people who have not undergone quote-unquote specific trauma, but have just kind of lived in the world facing the everyday trauma of marginalization um, against them. And they found that the rates of um, kind of traumatic effects or psychological consequences from that are more or less the same. Mm -hmm. In other words, just being a person in the world who belongs to a marginalized group has a profound effect on you psychologically and emotionally, right? And how can we ignore that as physicians, right? How can we say, oh yeah, we need to expand access to care and support the ACA, but we're not willing to wear our white coats when we are kind of defending groups that have been marginalized in our society along the lines of race, sexual orientation, or gender. Right. I mean, it's been shown already that health coverage slash healthcare is responsible for just about only 10% or up to 20% of people's health. And, you know, health is largely determined by those sort of social structures that we discuss. You speak a bit about, um, you know, the need to become more in tune with, like, what's happening in the political system as a physician. Uh, And you have a personal history of being both a teacher, um, an advocate, and an activist. And I'm wondering whether you can speak a little bit more uh, on that front and, you know, what advice you have for medical students who are interested in the work of both advocacy and activism. Mm-hmm. I think that you're, um, you're dancing around this distinction between advocacy and activism mm-hmm. um, a little bit, just, just to, like, lay out what the, the difference, I think, is, because we've talked a lot about this before. The delineation between advocacy and activism that Marco is getting ready to discuss is a framework that was described, at least in this context at first, by one of our friends and peers here, Niantara Anderson. She co-authored a piece about this in the Science, Medicine, and Anthropology journal, Somatosphere. You can find a link in the description of this episode. Advocacy is um, a medical student or a health practitioner who's advocating on behalf of some other vulnerable population, right? So it'd be as a medical student um, that usually, and usually in the case of advocacy, you don't share the identities that are represented in that vulnerable population. So an example of that would be a white male medical student who cares a lot about some other community and says, I'm going to go out and help them by providing care or something like that, right? So that's the sort of model of advocacy. Activism is different. 
Um, and activism is is something newer, um, I think, that's been happening over the last few years, at least in academic medical centers. Activism is when you have groups who hold identities that have been marginalized in the medical uh, profession and in medical institutions. So, for example, you have... Um, people of color who come together and say our groups have traditionally been alienated by medical institutions and by the medical profession and, and so by the world and by the world right but especially in all sorts of very specific ways in this medical culture that we're all a part of and so what can we do about that um, and what sort of demands can we make to the medical culture that we're entering so that we have a place in it um, and to what extent has medicine always kind of been approached from the perspective of white men? Mm-hmm. And like, how can we critique that? Um, and this has been sort of the activist moment that has been animating like um, um, movements like here, the next Yale School of Medicine movement um, um, that developed here over the course of the last few years. And so what I guess what I would say in terms of like going forward is that advocacy as a model has been embraced for a long time, or at least for the last few decades in medical culture. Right, and, it's and a one, savior thing. Yeah, it's a savior thing, right? You can say, like, being an advocate for another community doesn't implicitly critique medicine as a culture and as a discipline. You're saying, medicine's great, right? The problem is that we need more medicine for more people, for mm-hmm. more groups out there, right? And so advocacy is something that is easier to do as a medical student, right? Mm-hmm. You can join, um, you know, some global health elective and go somewhere else in the world and provide care for people who don't normally have it. Um, you can um, become part of the Protect Our Patients movement and argue that... Um, Shots fired. I was part of that movement. <laughs> <laughs> Protect Our Patients is a great movement and advocacy is great, but it's only one way of engaging politically as a medical student. And mm-hmm. I think it's the way that is easiest, frankly. I think the, the, the harder sort of activism that's not as amenable for medical institutions is this activism I've been talking about. Right. That sort of activism is more difficult in a lot of ways because instead of saying medicine's a good thing, you're saying medicine is problematic for all these sorts of reasons, right? Because it's had this history of excluding other voices, right? Because it's had this history of exploiting vulnerable groups to produce knowledge. Like, there's a long history, right, of medicine exploiting um, vulnerable subjects to produce knowledge and research. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for such a great conversation. I look forward to seeing your book once it's published. And I you know, hope to have you back on the pod. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, this has been a really great conversation. I look forward to talking more with you. My pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script. <laughs>